ಮಾಪ್ಯಾಯಂತಮಂಗಾಕ್ಪ್ರಾಣಶ್ಚಕ್ಷುಶ್ರೋತ್ರಮ್ರಹ್ಮೋಪನಿಷದ್ರಹ
get their training for two years, learn their scriptures and all the things in life. He is now also is the Acharya of the same training center. And his Brahmacharya was from Swami Bhuteshanandaji and his sannyas from Swami Ranganathanandu Maharaj. So here, today, I don't want to say anything more because he will speak in such a way he will be overwhelmed. So uh, he will be speaking today. His topic is the eternal witness. And his, uh, he will be leaving today itself afterwards. So we'll have question and answer session afterwards in the living room. So uh, I welcome Swami Sarbhupriyananda to uh, talk on the topic, the eternal witness. Yes, thank you. Swami said, if you exceed your time a little bit, no one's going to mind, but 12 is the target. And uh, one of our Swamis, known for his long speeches, it seems he was giving a speech at a conference in Bangkok, and, and uh, not him, but another person, a vice chancellor of a university, asked uh, the organizers, how long can I speak? And they said, sir, you can speak as long as you want, but we leave at five. <laughs> It's always a good idea to finish the speech before the, the audience is, um, you know, their patience is finished. A very good morning to all of you. I'm so happy to be here. Uh, revered Swami Sarvadevanji Maharaj, other revered monks, revered Matajis, and brothers and sisters in spiritual life. When I was learning communications, a teacher said to me that uh, the basic structure of a speech should be a talk. It should be, it has just three components. First, you tell them what you're going to tell them. Then you tell them. And third, you tell them what you have told them. So right now I'll just tell you what I'm going to speak about. My subject today is the whole of Advaita Vedanta, a tradition thousands of years old with an enormous amount of literature. But what I'm going to do is, I'm going to take the help of um, a genius in spiritual life and a philosophical genius too, Vidyaranya Swami, who lived in the south of India about 700 years ago. And he wrote a number of books, including the very well-known Panchadashi, 15 chapters on non-dual Vedanta, Advaita Vedanta. And in those 15 chapters, the first chapter, he begins by summing up the entirety of the philosophy, the spiritual teachings of Advaita Vedanta, non-dual Vedanta, in a span, in a compass of eight verses, just eight verses. And I'm going to, we are going to take a journey together through those eight verses today. That's what I'm going to be talking about. The advantage, the peculiar advantage of these eight verses is Vidyaranya Swami, what he does is he refers only to experience and reason. Scripture comes later, but first he refers only to experience and reason. He is not going to say anything anywhere here which is beyond anybody's experience. We have all experienced it. 
We are all experiencing it all the time. And he's going to reason upon it. And like a very good teacher, he will take us from the known to the unknown. From what is to what shall be. From what is near to what is far. So we, shall, we have to walk with him. And uh, since time is limited and the subject is vast, I'm going to pack this talk with a lot of material uh, from Vidyaranya Swami. So you have to walk very carefully with me. Uh, I remember this, uh, when we were kids, we had this Tintin comics. And I don't know if it's popular in, in USA, but very popular in, uh, among kids in India. And in one place, there's this professor talking about particle physics. And Captain Haddock is right walking behind him and listening to about, about how a nuclear reaction takes place. And the professor looks back at him and says, are you following me? And the captain replies, of course, I'm right behind you. <laughs> but we'll have to walk together with Vidyaranya Swami. Do come. I think there are some chairs here. Do come. There's one here, and I think there's one there somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, there's one here. He starts off. I'll read out the verse and then I'll explain it. The beautiful Sanskrit. Shabdas Parshadayo Vidya Vaichitrya Jagare Prithak Tato Vibhakta Tat Samvit Aikarupyan Abhidyate. Amazed, you know, 700 years ago, this philosopher wrote in the deep south of India. And his words are being echoed today by the grace of God in Hollywood, in the United States in the 21st century. He makes a remarkable point here. Do come over. Do come in. Come, come. Come and, and sit down. Sit down. Yeah. We are just starting. He makes a remarkable point. And I would like to dwell on this point a little while. If you grasp, if we grasp this point, the rest is not very difficult, but this is vital. I'll start with an example. We see so many things here. Thanks to the light in the room, we see so many things. There are people here, there's a stage, and there are, uh, there's somebody on the stage, there's a lectern, everything we can see. All these objects are different. The chair is different from the table, the people are different from each other, and we are all different from this room. But all of it is illumined by the same light. The objects change. You look at something and you look at something else, but both are illumined by the same light. And Vidyaranya Swami catches upon this fact and says, look at your own experience. You see so many things. You hear so many things. You touch and smell so many things. You think about so many things. You feel so many things. You remember so many things. All these things are different from each other. They're different. And yet, there is one thing common to all these experiences. The consciousness that is aware of each of these things. The consciousness is the same. He says, Shabdas Parshadayo Vedya. The objects of knowledge. Sound, what you are hearing right now. Touch, what you feel when you touch the seat you are sitting on. Uh, sight, all kinds of things which are known. He says, Vaichitrya Jagare Prithak. 
in our waking state. These things are different from each other. The knowables are different from each other. But, tato vibhakta, tat samvit. Separate from these knowables is the consciousness that illumines each of these things. The consciousness that is aware of these things. And that is one. That is separate from the knowable and is one. The knowables are many and different from each other. The consciousness which is aware of all these things is one and apart from these objects. Why is it apart from the objects? Because I am aware of something, I, I see something, then I see something else. If my consciousness were one with that object, it wouldn't be able to shift to another object. Objects keep coming and going. I am aware of all these objects. People keep coming and going. Thoughts and feelings and memories come and go. I am the one consciousness. In the ancient temple in Benares, in Kashi, in one of the entrances, is a very inconspicuous way, there is one image of Ganesha. One of the names of Ganesha is Vinayaka. And that particular Ganesha is called Sakshi Vinayaka. What does that deity do? Nothing. Doesn't do anything. It just watches. It's been watching for millennia. And the idea is, there's this consciousness within us which is watching the changing stream of life, ever-flowing stream of life. It is apart from that and it watches. It does not change. Consciousness does not change. Life changes and the objects that we know in life, they keep changing. Tato vibhakta tat samvit. The name given by Vidyaranya Swami to this unchanging one consciousness is samvit. Samvit. That samvit is one and unchanging. It is always the same. It does not change. Very good. Then what happens? Okay, I'll make a couple of more points here. You see, here is my hand and you can see it, the light reflected of my hand. You can see that. And in fact, you can see my hand only because of the light which is being reflected from the hand. Now the point I want to make here is this light is not being produced by the hand. It's not a part of the hand. It just falls on the hand, goes to your eyes, and that's why you're able to see that, to, to, to see my hand. And this light is not limited by the hand. There's, a, there's a, li a light all around here. Only when I put my hand up here, the light is reflected from my hand and goes to your eyes. If I take my hand away, is there light here? Yes, there is. There's just no hand to reflect the light. That's why you cannot see the light. But the light still remains here. In the same way, consciousness is not produced, is not a part of the objects which it is aware of. It's not produced by this body or mind, according to Vedanta. Here it differs from modern neuroscience. So consciousness is not a part of this physical body and mind system. It operates through this body-mind system. Not only that, consciousness is not limited by these objects. If there are no objects, we would not have experience, but consciousness would still be there. So these are... Subtle points, I'll just put it forward and we'll come back to them later. As the day wears on, afternoon, here you don't sleep in the afternoon, but in India, this, a siesta is compulsory, I think. Uh, so, in the afternoon or at night, we fall asleep and we dream. This whole world of objects, knowables, disappears and there is another dream world which comes before us. And Vidyaranya Swami talks about that. Tatha Sapnetra Vedyam Tu Nastiram Jagare Stiram Tadbhedotastayo Samvid Ekarupa Nabhidyate. A beautiful verse. He says, 
a dream world comes. What is a dream world? It's just like changing the channel on the TV. You are watching something, you change the channel, the whole thing disappears, another show comes on. So here is another show. You have forgotten that you are in the bed and sleeping. Yeah, sound sleep. Sound sleep normally means you are producing a lot of sound. <laughs> so, but you are watching a dream. And you are in the dream too. In the TV, at least you don't enter the show in the TV. But here there's a beautiful show going on in your own mind, which you enter as a, with a new as a dream body. And a dream experience takes place. And there are dream people, dream objects. And you're not aware that it's a dream. It seems very real. But what Vidyaranya Swami says, a variety of objects come during your dream experience. Just like your waking experience. We saw so many things, experienced so many things in the waking state. There are some people out there. I think they want to come in. Yeah. Do come in. So. Come in, miss. Come in front. Why are you all staggering here at the gate? Do come in here. Do come in here. We are just starting. Do come in here. Yeah. Sit down here. Sit down. Sit. We are overcrowded today. <laughs> so you have to sit Indian fashion today. <laughs> In the dream, so many objects come before us, just like the objects in the daytime, in, in our, our waking state. And Vidyaranya Swami says, my point I want to make here is the consciousness which illumined, which was aware of all our experiences in daytime, in a waking state, is the same consciousness which is aware of all that we experience in dream. It is continuous and unbroken. Immediately, we will come up with many objections. But dreams are different. Dreams are false. Things in dream disappear the moment you wake up. But the things in the world, whatever was there earlier, the people that were earlier, the problems that were there earlier, they all come back again. Right? So the waking and the dream are different. That's our commonplace experience. Holy Mother, Ma Sharada, she said once, she was asked the same question. She was sitting in, in a village in Jairambati. And I think it was Swami Arupananda probably who asked this question. When the Holy Mother said, this is all a dream, he shot back. He said, but Mother, the things in the dream are not stable. When you wake up, they are gone. In the next time you dream, they not, may not come back. You can't start a meal and put, put the leftovers and then <laughs> when next time I dream, I'll come back and warm them and eat them. You can't do that. Those things are just imagination. And the things in the world are stable. They are there when we come back. And... This did not impress the Holy Mother, Masharada. She just said, I'll tell you in Bengali, she dismissed it by saying, Ta holeiva baba, shopno to nai. That, be that as it may, my child, it is nothing other than a dream, that which we, which we are experiencing now. Vidyaranya Swami, he says, you may or may not be convinced that the dream and the waking world are similar. But the point I want to make here is, not that the dream and the waking world are similar. What I want to make here, the point is the same consciousness which was aware of the changing objects in the waking world is the same, very same consciousness continues to be aware of the new TV show in the dream world. He says, Swapniyatra Vedyam tu, the things that we see in the dream state, Nastiram, they are not stable. They come and go, they disappear. Jagare Stiram, in the waking state they are, they are stable, they come back again. If you are happy, you are happy, they come back again. Your bank balance comes back, your car comes back. And if you are unhappy, unfortunately, the same people and the same problems also come back when you, when you wake up. Okay, they may be stable. But the point here is, Tad bhedo samvit eka 
apart from those objects, the things and objects we see in the waking world, things and objects we see in the dream world, apart from that, the consciousness is constant. It watches. It was watching the waking world, now it watches the dream world. Think about it, it's our experience. He's not telling us anything new. He's just pointing to our experience and reasoning about it and making a small distinction that there is a consciousness which is watching, which is experiencing all this. And that consciousness does not change. The things experienced change. So one experience is different from another experience. Why? Because each experience is a compound of two things. The consciousness which experiences and the object which it experiences. So I see something. Here is an object which I'm experiencing with the help of the body and the eyes and the mind. And there's a consciousness which is illumining the entire sensory apparatus and the object. Now I see something else, the book. The object has changed. So the mic experience and the book experience are different because the mic is different and the book is different. But the consciousness is the same. That's all he wants to say. This one consciousness is flowing through waking and dream. Now things become interesting. I was talking with, about this, we won't believe it, with a couple of young teenagers yesterday. And this very intelligent young lady asked a question. She said, Swami, you're talking about an eye sense which is the unchanging ground of all our experiences. I said, very good. But your theory collapses in deep sleep. When we fall asleep, when I fall asleep, the eye is not there. The eye is not there. Everything disappears. Where is that consciousness? So the consciousness when we are unconscious or in deep sleep, you see, look at the very word unconscious. Where is consciousness? Where is this blessed consciousness you're talking about? It disappears. And would you believe it? It's so thrilling that when this young lady asks a question, the very next verse, 700 years ago, across oceans of time and space, Vidyaranya Swami replies, in deep sleep, what happens? The next question is, what happens in deep sleep? And here is the answer. Supto thetasya saushupta tamo bodho bhavet smritihi sacha va buddha vishaya ava buddham tattadatamaha What does it mean? When we go into deep sleep, it's a blankness. But something very important, something very interesting happens when we wake up. We wake up and say, say that we, I didn't know anything. I slept like a log. I had very good sleep. I didn't know anything. Now the question is, how do I recall that? If I see this, a little later you're seeing, you're seeing this. When you go out of this hall, a little later you'll recall it because you've seen it. When you see a dream, when you dream, when you wake up, you recall. Sometimes we do recall our dreams. Why? Because we have seen it. And we recall a period of blankness. If there was no consciousness there, how would we recall it after waking up? You know, if, if actually there was no consciousness in deep sleep, what would happen? A thought experiment. What would happen is this. We are awake, we fall asleep, we dream and we wake up. In between, if there's deep sleep and no real consciousness, we would never have the intuition of a period of complete blankness. We have an intuition that for a period there was nothing. And what Vidyaranya Swami says, 
the experience of something and the experience of nothing. Both are experiences. I give an example. When we are kids, we would pull, and you know, in the winter, we would pull the comforter over ourselves. And it would be totally dark inside. And in that darkness, if I open my eyes, am I seeing or not seeing? I am seeing. The eyes are there. But there's nothing to see. It's blank. Exactly in the same way in deep sleep, there's no awareness of the external world. There's no awareness of my body. There's no awareness of my mind. So I do not think that I am sleeping. But there is some awareness of a blankness, which when we wake up, we say, I slept happily. I didn't know anything. He says, if you experience this, if you recall this, recollection always means some kind of prior experience. Sacha avabuddha vishaya. This recollection pertains to some kind of thing that was experienced earlier. So in deep sleep, there was experience. I always give the example of uh, something I heard uh, in the Institute of Culture in Kolkata. There was a seminar on consciousness and the philosophers and the neuroscientists couldn't come together at all. And finally, a philosopher, a philosopher of Sankhya, and he's American, Professor Larson, he stood up and he asked this neuroscientist who, was, who happened to be British, said, Doctor, according to your neuroscience, according to modern medicine, is there consciousness in deep sleep? And the doctor said, no. By definition, deep sleep is a state of, there is brain activity, but there is no consciousness as what we would call consciousness. So it's a state of no consciousness. And Larson, very nicely, he put it, he said, according to this philosophy, Sankhya and especially Vedanta, in deep sleep, we have only consciousness. Neuroscience says there is no consciousness in deep sleep. Therefore, we have no experience. And Vedanta says there is only consciousness in deep sleep, no object to, know, to be known. Hence, we don't have any experience. If there is light, look at this. My hand is there, it's reflected, you can see the light. If I remove my hand, there is light here. As it was, but you can't see anything because there's no hand to reflect it. Exactly like that, in deep sleep, Consciousness continues. The samvit, which Vidyaranya Swami was talking about, that which is within us, it continues unbroken, unchanged, unfazed. Just that objects have disappeared. And then he says, Sabodho vishayad bhinno nabodhat svapnabodhavat evam sthanatrayepyeka samvitadvaddinantare that consciousness is exactly the same consciousness which was watching our dream, our day of waking experiences, our dream experiences is watching nothing in deep sleep. That consciousness continues unbroken throughout. And he says, evam sthanatraya In all three states of our experience. Which experience? Everybody has it. We wake, we dream and we sleep. That's what we are doing all throughout our lives. In all these three states, it is one consciousness, unbroken, which watches. And tadvaddinantare. Next day, anything new happens? No, same story. Another waking state, another dream state, another dream, uh, sleep state. Tadvaddinantare, just like that, the next day also goes. And what happens? Just like that, the day after, the week after, the month after, the year after, years roll by. The body grows and ages and decays. And the body dies. 
and we have a new body consciousness watches the mind may forget mind may forget consciousness watches bodies come and go centuries roll by thousands of years millennia in fact he says yugas hundreds of thousands of years the cycle of the universe rolls on Oh, it disappears and a new universe is created consciousness watches and there's this beautiful verse so stirring i remember uh, revere sarvadevanji maharaj when he was last in belurmat he addressed the novices in the training center where i am and he quoted this verse a beautiful stirring verse i love this verse i'll quote it to you and explain it he says so what is the conclusion मसाबुगकु गु नास्तमेतेका fathers and mothers husbands and wives children and children and grandchildren friends and enemies worldliness and spirituality all this consciousness has watched millennia have rolled past yuga kalpas cycles of the universe the universe ages and dies we are so ancient we have been watching gatagammeshune kadam it's thrilling so many millennia and universes and lives have passed gamyeshu so many are yet to come many more are yet to come but what about this consciousness no deeti nastameti it neither rises nor sets like the sun rises and sun sets this sun of consciousness does not rise or set it's always the same same there is no day and night in the sun the day and we experience day and night but if you go to the sun itself there's no day and night in the same way consciousness is ever illumined blazing forth as in the gita arjuna experienced it like a, if a thousand suns rise in the sky together devi sahasra surya yuga padutthita if a thousand suns were to rise in the sky that consciousness we have right now we are in fact that consciousness right now samvedesha swayam prabha it is swaprakasha it knows everything else none of it knows nobody can know that consciousness it is the one which knows everything samvid esha swayam prabha this consciousness self effulgent it shining everything else shines and this swami vivekananda was very fond of this verse from the upanishads natatra suryo bhati na chandra tarakam nema vidyuto bhanti kutoyam agni tameva bhanta manuhati sarvam tasya bhasa sarvam idam vibhati there the sun shines not not the comely moon there the stars do not shine uh, what uh, not the lightning what to speak of this mere fire imagine and a fire lit night in the ancient times in india and somebody a poet speaks of this that shining all this shine all this universe shines in front of us by its light is everything illumined and that consciousness we are just now there was a very old monk very humorous more than 80 years old he was in the himalayas i spent some time with him about 10 years back and he used to say mahatma ji ek galti kiya i made one mistake in my life i asked what is it sir i made an ashram 
You know, I used to live in a cave. I made an ashram. That's the only mistake I made in my life. Otherwise, I am happy. Huh? Uh, and he used to often say, I'll tell you in Hindi and translate. Tum jano na jano. Tum mano ya na mano. Tum hi ram. You know it or you do not know it. You accept it or you reject it. You are Rama, which means you are God. God meaning this pure consciousness. And there's a funny incident I can't resist telling you. A doctor had come to see him. He was old. He, I hope he's still alive. He was 80 plus and obese, very uh, overweight. Could hardly move. Uh, and he was ill. And the doctor had come to see him in the high Himalayas. And the doctor said, the doctor was skinny. So the doctor said, Swami, what do you eat? You, you've become so fat. What do you eat? You've become so fat. And the Swami shot back immediately. He said, I, I, I'll translate for your benefit. I eat all my anxieties and your anxiety eats you. All my fears and anxieties and problems, I eat them up and I've become so fat. Of course, that's fast food. That's not healthy food. You fears and anxiety, so you become fat. But your fears and anxieties, oh doctor, they're eating you up. You become skinny. <laughs> this son of consciousness neither rises nor sets. And that son of consciousness is what you are. Okay. Time for a short little bit of time out. Look back. And they say Singhavalokananyaya in Sanskrit. The lion, it seems, when it walks majestically in the forest, once in a while it stops and it looks back like this. They say, the poet says it's looking back to see the path it has covered. So it's called Singhavalokananyaya means the lion looking back. Now we are going to do that, the lion looking back. Uh, what have we found so far? To put it briefly, everything changes. That which watches the change, pure consciousness does not change. That is what you and I, we are. That's what we are. So far. That does not change. It does not come and go. It does not increase or decrease. Now here is a point which Vidyaranya Swami would like us to grasp. Um, he has not explained it. I will uh, put it out before you. This, this point. We are pure consciousness. Fine. Now, keep that aside. Let's talk about existence things which exist. You see things here in this world, they exist. This table exists, we exist, I exist, you exist, this, world, this uh, room exists, this country and this world and everything. Even our thoughts exist. Now, one common thing about all this is, all that we are aware of is, things come into existence and things pass out of existence. Things are transient. Nothing lasts. The bug of a day is born and dies the same day. Tagore puts it very beautifully, Rabindranath Tagore, in one of his poems. He looks upon, the poet looks upon a leaf which falls from the tree, a dry leaf, and falls into a pool. And the ripples, there's tiny ripples on the pool, and the still water of the pool. And he's, he says, the poet writes so poignantly, these ripples are the same, this, these ripples in this little pool are the same which spread out among the stars and the galaxies. You know, the ripples of time. Everything passes away, everything changes. Now, existence. Can we think about it in this way? Something can have existence which is intrinsic 
and something which um, existence which is extrinsic. What is intrinsic and what is ex extrinsic? If there is some property which belongs to me, as long as I am existing, that property is also there, I will call it my intrinsic property. And if there is something which comes and goes, like this shirt I've put on, it's extrinsic, it's there with me now, I can change it and put on another, another shirt. I'm still the same. In a commonsensical way, I'm still the same person, but the shirt has changed. So the shirt is not intrinsic to me. I mean, I can exist without the shirt. I would still be the same person without this shirt, I'd put on a different shirt. So this table, for example, is brown in color, and if you paint it red, I mean, don't, but if you do paint it red, red, it would still be the same table. So the color of this table is not an intrinsic property of this table. Why? Because the table can exist without this color. This color can come and go, some other color can come. So the color is not an intrinsic property of the table. Now think about existence. Is there anything whose intrinsic property is existence? Because the moment you think, the moment you say, things come into existence and things pass out of existence, Things are born and things die. What are, what are we saying? We, we are saying that these things gain existence and they lose existence. Existence does not belong to these things. If existence did belong to something, what would happen? Let me give you another example. You're boiling vegetables on the cooking range here. So you have fire and you have a bowl, you have water in that, and in the water you put vegetables. And the vegetables are hot. Is the heat intrinsic to the vegetables or, or not? It's not. The moment you take it out, after some time it will become cold. Why are the vegetables hot? Because they borrowed their heat from water. Water was bubbling. Is the water intrinsically hot? No. The moment you take it out and put it out on the table, after some time it becomes cold. It will freeze. What about the bowl? The water is hot because of the bowl. It has borrowed heat from the hot bowl. Is the bowl intrinsically hot? No. The moment you take it out, it will cool down. Where did the bowl get its heat from? From the fire in the cooking range. Is the fire intrinsically hot? Yes. Yes. You take the fire to Siberia. Will it be hot? Yes. It will be hot. There was a picture just before I came of a plane in Siberia. They were trying to scare me. They were telling, telling me it's going to be terribly cold in USA in, in January, and look, this is what's going to happen to you. And they showed me a picture of a plane in Siberia. It seems the plane was stuck in snow, and they got a tractor to pull it. The tractor got stuck in snow, and the pilot ordered the passengers out and asked them to push. <laughs> and so here, these big Russians in big parkas, they're pushing the plane. So it's terribly cold there. But what happens if you take fire to Siberia? Will it become cold? No, because fire, as long as it lasts, is hot. Heat is an intrinsic property of fire. So as long as the fire is there, it will be hot. Now, if something has existence as its intrinsic property, what will happen? If it is not an intrinsic property, the thing will come into existence and go out of existence. It will be born, it will die. It's limited by time. It's born and it dies. So... We, for example, as Anand Swami used to joke so beautifully, he said, we are born at one time, we come into existence. And then after that, we die after some time. And when we die, if we are buried, there will be a tombstone above, above the grave, which will say 1901 to 2001. And there's a dash in between. And the Swami used to say <laughs> humorously, that is what life is, a dash 
from the womb to the tomb. <laughs> a dash from the, we are dashing always from the womb to the tomb. So we do not have intrinsic existence. This body does not have intrinsic existence because it dies. Because it was created at one time, it came into existence and then it lost existence. If something, but the point I want to make is, if something has intrinsic existence, it would never die. If something intrinsically exists, if existence is intrinsic to something, then it would be eternal. Now transfer this consciousness, this, this concept back to what we had got. A consciousness which never changes. It's the same in waking, it's the same in dream, it's the same in deep sleep. It's the same for days and months and years and millennia through lives and through bodies. Unchanging. Now this consciousness has intrinsic existence or not? Yes. Good. I'm glad you said yes with so much vigor. It shows you're still walking. Huh? <laughs> we are still with Vidyaranya Swami. If he looks back at us and he says, are you behind me? Are you following me? We can say, yes, we are with you. We are not only following, we are not just behind you, but we are following. We are with you. Yes. The moment he shows us consciousness does not change through lives, and does not change at all. The other meaning, the implication, the corollary, what we derive is consciousness has intrinsic existence. In Sanskrit terms, they call this sat, existence absolute. Existence absolute. So, what have we got so far? Inside us, in us, our real nature, unchanging nature is consciousness absolute and existence absolute. Chit and Sat. The term he used was Samvit. The term used commonly in Vedanta is Chit. Consciousness. Pure consciousness. And this pure consciousness is also, it has intrinsic existence. It is also Sat. Sat means pure existence. Our true nature is consciousness and existence. Swami Vivekananda says, it is not that the soul or the Atman not that it exists, it is existence itself. Not that it knows, it is knowledge itself. Now we can understand better what he means. But there's one more thing. Happiness, bliss, joy. We say sat, chit, ananda. Existence, consciousness, bliss. That's the other part. And that's what we are coming to now. So we had a little time out. Now I'm coming back to the mainstream again. Now he's going to tell us, you, the pure consciousness, immortal consciousness, you, the pure existence and pure consciousness, you are also pure bliss. And that also he's going to show it to us through reason and experience. How is he doing, going to do that? Let's see. It's very interesting. Another set of arguments which you can take separately. Yamatma parananda paraprimaspadam yataha mana bhuvam hi bhuyasam Iti Okay, very subtle set of arguments. Follow this carefully and very, very interesting. You'll be a little startled by these arguments. He says, what do we like? We like things which make us happy. We do not like things which make us unhappy. Very common sense. I mean, this is, very simple point. We like things which make us happy. We do not like things which make us unhappy. First point. Second point is, those things which make us happy, we try to get them, or if we have them, we try to keep them. We try to get them, or we try to keep them. 
If you've got good health, you try to maintain good health because it makes you happy. You don't have good health, you're trying to get good health. You're trying to get them or keep them. Children, unfortunately, there's sometimes a problem. Children make you happy, so you don't want to let them go, <laughs> especially in India. Um, a Swami, who's from Argentina, he said, after looking at Bengali mothers, he said there are three mothers I found were very similar. Italian mothers, Jewish mothers, and Bengali mothers. <laughs> they don't want to let the children grow up. <laughs> They'll always have the children with them. Uh, because they make you happy. You don't want to let them go. So what makes you happy you would like to retain or get? And the obverse side, what makes us unhappy, we naturally try to get rid of or avoid. If it's already there, things, some situation, people, we get rid of it. And we, uh, we try to get rid of that. Or if you don't like somebody or don't like a situation, don't like a place, you would like to avoid it. This is the second point. What was the first point? That which makes us happy, we like. That which does not make us happy, which makes us unhappy, we dislike. So this is the first point. The second point was that which we like, we try to keep. We try to get. That which we do not like, we try to avoid or get rid of. Okay. Seems fairly obvious. Now he's going to spring a bomb upon you. He says, now, manabhuvam hi bhuyasam. Everybody's experience throughout the world, not just human beings, all living creatures. Nobody wants to die. All say, let it not be that I shall not be. I mean, let it not come to pass that I am not. I must be. Immediately somebody will put up, what about people who commit suicide? They commit suicide because there's a problem. So, some problem in life, in economy, in the, in, the, in the health. You put that right in relationships. You put that right, immediately you'll give up the desire to commit suicide. So a person who tries to kill himself or herself is doing it because there's a particular problem. If you put that problem right, that person will not try to kill himself or herself. So nobody tries, or nobody wants to die. Everybody wants to exist, to remain, to be. So now you put these three facts together. I don't want to get rid of myself. I always want me to be there. Which means, the things which I like, I want to retain. So I like myself. I really like myself. Something deep within me, I value. That's why I always want it to be there. I don't want it to, want to lose it. And the first thing which we said, what things do I like? Those things which make me happy. If I always want to retain myself, it means I always like myself. If I always like myself, it means I always make myself happy. I'm, it, I am my own source of joy. Do you want me to run through that again? <laughs> we never think in this way. This is a remarkably subtle piece of reasoning. But what he's saying is, we things which make us happy, we like. Things which make us unhappy, we dislike. Things which we like, we try to retain. Things which, which we dislike, we try to get rid of. Now, we always try to retain ourselves. It means we always like ourselves. If we always like ourselves, then we always are our own source of joy, of happiness. That's the argument. And one more argument he gives to show that you are, you are the source of joy, the greatest source of joy. Tat prematmarthaman yatra naivam manyarthamatmanaha Atas tat paramam tena 
परम आनंदात Another set of arguments to show that we are the ultimate source of bliss. What did the earlier, if you have followed carefully, what did the earlier verse so show that we are our own continuous source of bliss, unchanging source of bliss? And is this the highest bliss? Yes. Why? The logic is like this: a mother and a child, and the child's toy. The mother loves the toy too. Why? Because it's her baby's toy. The child loves the toy, so the mother loves the toy. The toy is loved for the sake of the child. Who is more loved? The child, not the toy. The toy is loved for the sake of the of the child, and the child is loved, we think, for its own sake. So that which we love, and we love something more than that. If if we love something for the sake of another, that another is loved more. If that is love for something else, for example, people say, "I love my job." Why do you love your job? Because it gives me money. I love money. <laughs> Why do you love money? Because it gives me the things in life which I want, or a good life which I want. It lo I lo love that. And why do you love those things? Because it makes my wife or husband or child happy. Now you see, the job is loved for the sake of money. Money is loved for the sake of things it buys. Those things are loved for the happiness it buys your family, and the family is loved because it buys you happiness. It gets you happiness. Now, what is loved more, job or money? Money, because I wouldn't do the job without the money. What is loved more, money or the things it buys? The things it buys. If you give me all those things, I don't want money. <laughs> and that's true. <laughs> You know, people gave me money, and uh, I think uh, because monks do need money, you're traveling around and doing work. But, but you know, I'd just be as happy if the what I spend the money for, if it was given to me directly, it's okay. I don't need money otherwise. What will I do with money? So, the things if you get them directly, that's good enough. But what good are those things without the family you are getting it for? If suppose you're getting it for the family, so the family is more important: husband, wife, children. Therefore. A thing which you love, if you love it for something else, that you love more. And what he says here is, all things are loved for the happiness of the self. The happiness of the self is not loved for anything else. It may sound a very selfish statement, but he does not mean it that way. It's not that individual thing he means, but what he means is that pure existence consciousness within. For that, everything is loved. Just imagine. You see, I am altruistic. I do work for the poor. It's not for my own sake. Doesn't that make me happy? Does it make me unhappy? If it made me unhappy, I wouldn't do it. It make, makes me happy. Therefore, I do it. So it is for my own sake. Even the highest altruism is also, in one sense, for one's own sake. Just as the most selfishness, the greatest degree of selfishness is. So all things are loved for the sake of the consciousness within. That is not love for anything else. In this gradation, a thing is loved for something else. If it, that thing is is a greater source of joy. Therefore, if everything is loved for the sake of this self within, and it is not loved for anything else, then what is the highest source of joy? The self within. Now, if you put these two verses together, you get two points: that the true self within is a source of unfailing, unchanging, continuous joy. It is also the ultimate joy. We never think in that way. We think 
things other than the self can give us happiness. But it is the happiness of the self which is reflected in those things. But that's another story. So now what do we have? We are almost at the end of the journey. Vidyaranya Swami says, Ittam satchit parananda Atma yuktya tatha vidham Param brahma tayoschaikyam Shrutyante shupadishyate Therefore, what we have now is you, we, each of us, you are existence, absolute, consciousness, absolute, bliss, absolute. Ittam sat chit parananda atma. Atma means I myself. I am existence, absolute. I am consciousness, absolute. I am bliss, absolute. Chidananda rupaha shivoham Shankaracharya sings. There's this philosopher who didn't get it. And he said that Shankaracharya, what? Tremendous, what supreme arrogance. He says, I am consciousness and existence and bliss absolute, I am, I am Shiva. He didn't get it at all. Shankaracharya does not say that in the terms of, a, of an individual being called Shankara. He means the consciousness, bliss, uh, existence, which is common to all of us. So that is Sat Chit Ananda. And Vidyaranya says, if you have walked with me in this journey, I have never once referred to any sort of faith or belief or scripture, nothing. I have just reflected upon your experience. Oh reader, who are reading me uh, 700 years, you know, oceans of time and space apart, in, across the oceans in, in Hollywood, in Los Angeles. And that old man, 700 years ago, writing this. If you have walked with me, you see from our own experience, our shared human experience, that we are existence absolute, consciousness absolute, bliss absolute, sat, chit, ananda. Yuktya tathavidam. By reason and experience alone. By reason and experience alone. Now let us open the Upanishads, the scriptures. And what do the scriptures tell us? Param brahma tayoschaikyam shrutiyante shupadishyati. Shrutiyanta means Vedanta. Shruti is Veda. Shruti is Veda. And Shrutiyanta is Vedanta. In Vedanta, we are taught about God, Brahman, and what is Brahman? Sat, Chit, Ananda. The Upanishad tells us God is Sat, Chit, Ananda. Existence absolute, consciousness absolute, bliss absolute. And you go like, me? <laughs> Upanishad says, says, yes, you, Tayoshchaikyam, you, the individual, you who were studying Vedanta, you find the existence, consciousness, bliss within. That, the Upanishad says, is God. The, the oneness, the identity of the divine and the human. You know, one of the beautiful, most beautiful statements I find is in a Sufi poet. Um, the Sufi poet says, the Muslim, he says, I looked, they are mystics. So he says, I looked for Allah. And I found myself. I looked for myself. I found Allah. That's exactly what this is saying. You look within, you find God. You search for God, you find yourself. The Upanishad tells you, existence, consciousness, bliss, which you find upon investigation within yourself, is none other than Brahman of the Upanishads, God of this universe. They are one and the same. Swami Vivekananda says, it is not that 
The soul exists, it is existence itself. It's not that the soul knows, it is knowledge itself. It is not that the soul is happy, it is happiness itself. Just two more points and then I'll be done. Two practical points, I can see it, sometimes it creates confusion. One is, many of us, many if not all of us, many of us are initiated devotees. You know, we have taken a mantra and we are doing a particular kind of sadhana, a spiritual practice. So we may think, what is the connection between this uh, high philosophy and, and the devotion, meditation-oriented practice I'm doing? What's the connection? So it's especially for those who have taken initiation. And I asked this question to one of the oldest monks who passed away two years ago, Upen Maharaj, a disciple of Swami Shivanandaji, Nirmuktanandaji, he was sitting in Maharaj's temple facing the Ganga in Belurmat. I went up to him and asked, I did pranams and said, Maharaj, Swamiji, what is the relationship between this existence consciousness bliss we find in Vedanta and the Ishta Devata, the, the God whom we worship in our heart with mantra and japa and all. And he said immediately, straight away, he smiled and said, have you not heard what Sri Ramakrishna told Akhandanandaji? Jejar Ishto Shetar Atma. Your, the God you worship and love and adore is this very existence consciousness bliss which is yourself. Jejar Ishto Shetar Atma. Ishta means the God you worship, you pray to. That God is the consciousness existence bliss which you find within yourself. It is one and the same thing. Point number one. So the God which, whom we pray to, whom we meditate upon, whom we are practicing as per the instructions of our spiritual instructor is the same thing, is exactly the same thing which Vedanta talks about, first. And second, just a doubt which comes, I've got two minutes, I'll use, use that to clarify something. Often, when you talk about this, many people are like, um, okay, this is philosophy, uh, what about practice? Yeah. What do we do? And what about the prayer and the meditation and the work that we do? So all that is useless. It's only you just read Panchadeshi and that's all. <laughs> no. See, what happens is, Vedanta, Advaita Vedanta, there was Swami who said very beautifully, in Sanatana Dharma, in Hinduism, none of the yogas are ever left out. Whatever the path you take, Advaita, Vishishta Advaita, Dvaita, there will be a space for jnana, a space for meditation, space for work and space for, space for love and devotion. So, the way they see it here in, in Advaita Vedanta, remember we are talking about the path of knowledge, Jnana Yoga, non-dual Vedanta. What they say is, this realization is sufficient to give us liberation. If it doesn't happen, what, what's the problem? The problem is our minds are unable to grasp this truth. It just remains something I've read in a book or heard in a lecture. Then what is required? Meditation, they say, is required. Meditation is extremely important. Upasana. Okay, Swami, I try to meditate. Mostly I fall asleep. Or my mind runs hither, hither and thither. So what happens? What's the problem? The problem there is the mind is not pure enough. There's so many things, so many things which pull. Sri Ramakrishna talks about this mongoose. I don't know if you have mongoose here. You have? It tried to leap through a hole in the fence. But it couldn't because the brick was tied, tied to its bushy tail. Some naughty kid had tied a brick to its bushy tail. So when you try to leap through the hole, it got pulled back again. In the same way, in meditation, when you try to dive deep, we are pulled back up to the world because mind is tied to the world with so many strings. So a purity, a cleansing of the mind is necessary and therefore karma yoga, the path of service, unselfish work, that is also recommended by Advaita, in Advaita Vedanta. If you don't agree, you just have to see Shankaracharya's Bhashya on Bhagavad Gita. 
again and again, this proponent of jnana over karma, he extols the importance of karma. He says, unless this is gone through, unless a preliminary discipline is gone through, simplicity, austerity, staying a little away from the ups and downs of the world and focusing on selfless work, on upasana devotion, only then this jnana becomes effective. This is the final stage and this leads to liberation. I pray to God that that day comes to all of us in this very life of ours. Thank you. Thank you. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tatsat Shri Ramakrishna.